This presentation is from Service Design Canberra 2016. For more presentations from this and other conferences, please visit uxaustralia.com.au. So this is Darren Menachemson. He works at ThinkPlace. ThinkPlace is sponsoring today, which you can tell by them, the fact that they're around your neck on your lanyards. So thank you for sponsoring and helping out the conference. And thank you separately for being here to do a talk for us. So thanks, Darren. Great. Thanks, Donna. Wow, that's, I should just walk off the stage. I'm going to rush out of an applause. Um, thank you so much, everybody, for, um, for giving me a bit of your day today to talk about a couple of predictions that we've got. Um, a bit of thinking that we've done about what is the world of service design going to look like, particularly in a government context in the next 10 years. And I think it's safe to say that all of us, whether we're service designers or whether we're just living our lives in some completely different role, have become pretty experts at adapting. The pace of change is huge. Things change, and they don't change in small ways. It's not just fast, it's dramatic. Um, Fifteen years ago, um, video calls happened in science fiction movies, not in your grandmother's house. Fifteen years ago, sharing tiny moments of your life with everyone you know multiple times every day would have been terrifying if it hadn't been impossible. Um, Fifteen years ago, digital games were for fun, not for helping NASA work out if there were planets orbiting distant stars, or for that matter, helping you get more out of your, uh, your exercise regime. Fifteen years ago, if you wanted to buy Walter Austinek's classic anthem, Let's Have a Party Polka, you would have had to have bought his entire It's Polka Time CD. Now you can just buy the song. And that's like, that's, that's not just about polka. No, serious, it's not just about polka. It's, it's a model change. That is a model change. In the next 15 years, you're going to meet somebody with a bionic eye. In fact, you'll probably meet them sometime next year. Uh, if they have macular degeneration. Um, you're probably going to get a pizza delivered to you. I know we all know this, but yes, it's actually going to happen. You're going to get a pizza delivered to you um, by drone. And Air Services Australia, if they're in the room, yes, you should be extremely worried about this development. Um, you're going to customize and print out your own running shoe. If you've been watching the news, you probably know that you're going to have a roof that's also a solo PV set of roofing tiles, and it's going to cost a little bit less than a normal roof, and that's how you're going to power your house. And if you don't have that, you're probably going to be getting clean energy from somewhere else on the grid anyway. Um, you will meet somebody who's only alive because they received a personalized, um, genetically um, coded um, type of medication um, using... Does any can I just get a little show of hands? Do people know what CRISPR is? People heard of CRISPR? A couple of people. In 10 years' time, CRISPR is going to do for medicine what mobile phones did for information access. You're all going to know what CRISPR is. Um, and you're going to meet some of its first um, users soon. In fact, in China in May, they were doing some tests with CRISPR, which is basically a way of cutting and pasting genes. Uh, and when you can cut and paste genes, you can do all types of amazing things. You're, you're going to stop owning a car at some point. You're going to start sharing cars. People may have heard about the sharing economy. It's a phrase at the moment. It will be a reality. You're going to think that people who buy cars are a little weird. And that car that you share, it's going to drive itself. And that's really not far off. That is really not far off. Um, technology is stimulating innovation at the model level. 
but it's still about people and society when it gets right down to it. So here's a bit of a conundrum. Imagine that a car is autonomously, so self-driving down the road, and it gets into a position where it needs to make a choice. Either it's going to knock over that pedestrian or it's going to go into a tree and hurt the people inside the car. Um, can I just have a show of hands? Who, who would like the pedestrian to, to survive or have at least a good afternoon? Can we just have a show of hands? Okay. Um, car? Who's for the car? Who needs a bit of time to think this through? I'm going to ask that question again. Imagine that you were in the car. Now, <laughs> who would like the passengers to survive? You're all thinking, and so, me too, me too. If, if my family, aha, all bets are off, right? All bets are off. Um, that's not a technology decision. That's an ethics decision. And we need ways of taking all of this innovation and disruption that's happening and grounding it in... And I'm almost tempted to start applying just the, the framework that you have, not just to an organization, but to society as a whole, because I think those different cadences and, and those different layerings are absolutely um, applicable there. Um, but uh, we need some framework of saying, how do we create change where the societal outcome is keeping pace with the technology, doesn't get ahead of us? Um, let's get back to CRISPR for a second before we go to government. Um, with CRISPR... At some, so, so, like I said, last May in China, um, there was work done on non-viable uh, embryos, um, looking to see if they could use CRISPR to cure, or maybe a better word is to say delete, uh, genetic, um, uh, genetic illnesses. There's going to come a time when it's not even an ethics question whether or not we should do that, not doing it, it's probably going to feel quite unconscionable. Maybe it's even going to be actionable. But once you start down that path, where does it stop? What about a physical, um, uh, a physical disability that's heritable? Um, what about um, a metabolism, increasing a person's metabolism so that at age um, 60, they don't die of heart disease? What about making someone a little bit smarter? What about making somebody have a little bit more musical ability. Um, where does it stop being about remediating disadvantage and start being about something different? And it's really hard to tell. Um, government is a complex system that applies governance to another complex system called society. Working through these types of challenges is genuinely difficult. And I guess what my presentation is really about is the fact that it's only going to get harder and more exciting. Um, because when we think about things, we can always think about user pathways as sort of a, like a bit of a journey map, right? So you can think about surface experiences where you say, um, if a person is going to uh, gets, gets a scan back and finds out that there's a problem with their fetus, um, what they'll do, whoops, what they'll do is they'll become aware of it. Then they'll go through some sort of response process, and then once the baby is born, if there's any issues, they'll, they'll um, apply care. That misses out a whole lot of much um, deeper interactions which need to be designed in, where you get below the surface and start thinking about the cultural shifts. You know, how do we manage that as a society, and how do we design that into our service? Not just the touch points, but the societal impact. Um, and in doing so, maybe we get to... Um, 
uh, make the world a bit of a better place for ourselves and our families. I'm Darren Menarkinson. I'm one of the partners at um, a social good um, design consultancy called ThinkPlace. Um, we do a lot of work with government. Um, we're actually headquartered here in Canberra, but we're in lots of places around the world. Um, and so we get a chance to apply design thinking to some really tricky government challenges. And we, and we get to see a lot, not just in Australia, but um, we get to see the, the challenges that government are grappling with or the seeds of challenges that government is grappling with in a, lots of different contexts. And government is going through the same type of rapid transformation that we're going through. Uh, for those of us that work in the public sector, we're seeing this all the time. Um, the pace may be a little bit slower than the private sector, um, but the stakes are also much higher in many cases. We, we've come a long way from the mid-90s. So, does anyone remember this? <laughs> that was, that's from 1996. Fed, fed.gov.au. And, you know, when you think about GeoCities, like, that's pretty great design. I, when I saw it, I, I thought, I was going back and I thought, ah, oh, this is going to be great. I'm going to be able to laugh at the design. This is, this is pretty good. This is actually pretty good. But it's still a static experience. Where we've gone in the last 10 years, uh, sorry, the last 20 years since this happened, is we've actually shattered assumptions, transformed our understanding of what the model is. And now we need to think about in 2026, if we experience the same level of transformation and the same level of disruption that we did in the last 10 years, what does 2026 look like? What does it feel like? What are we spending our attention on? As service designers, what's worrying us? As, as we go through a couple of provocations, things that are going to cause a change, and then sort of a wrap-up of what the change is. Uh, the provocations for uh, the first prediction that I'd like to make are the fact that big data is very much a reality. Um, the fact that big data is becoming more shareable will, um, will increase over time, and we'll get back to that in a second. And there's enough processing power um, not necessarily right now, but certainly over the next couple of years, that trying to um, use <coughs> excuse me, trying to use three million data points to drive policy design is going to become something very viable. So um, it's funny when when I was starting to think about this, it was about a month ago, and I thought loosening of impediments. We we rarely need to get some of those um, legislative impediments some of the, um, the administrative impediments that, um, Jess, again, I think you refer to. It feels like legislation, but it's actually not. It's just um, the archaeologists haven't discovered where the impediment came from yet, so trying to unpick those. Um, and we need to start thinking about our data in a different way that's respectful of privacy and respectful of um, confidentiality, but also considers big data to be this amazing national asset with incalculable value. And if we can unlock it, gee, imagine what we could do. And I was thinking that. And then about a couple of weeks ago, I don't know if anybody saw... Can I actually just have a set of hands? I'm curious to see if it, if it had any airplay. Uh, the Productivity Commission reports on data. Has anyone seen that? One, two, three, four. Um, it's a draft report. So about five or six people in the room have seen it. 
It's a draft report, and if its recommendations are accepted, it's going to change everything. I think everybody should read it. It says a couple of things, but what it's really saying is unleash data. You know, I can foresee through it if it goes ahead. There will probably be some sort of omnibus bill which will come through and change a whole lot of the uh, barriers to using and sharing data and get that data out into the public and let the research sector, the private sector, the community sector, other government agencies take data, put it together in new ways and see what happens. Um, wide exploration of challenges and solutions, that, that's what we get out of it. At some stage by 2020, um, we think that there is going to be a normalization expectation that using big data to support any type of service design particularly when there's vulnerability or security issues or any type of um, significant risk, is not going to be an option. It's going to be part of your due diligence. And when you think about the scenarios that could come out of this, it, it's easy to start understanding why. I, imagine, so if people have flown over Melbourne recently, you might have flown over that, that's Melbourne. Imagine if um, we bring together data sets of health, data sets of education, data sets of urban planning, and we do something a bit exploratory, and, and socioeconomic data as well. And we work out that, hey, you know, melanoma incidence goes down by 40% in 50-year-olds under certain urban designs, which include community spaces and shade, if there is also some sort of educational intervention in early childhood about sun care. Um, it's not something you'd just think of, <laughs> but the data might be able to tell you those types of stories. And who knows what's lurking inside of that data? Um, but we will know, because for service designers, I think the big questions are going to be, how can we harness policy analytics in 2020 in service design to actually be a part of discovery and ideation? Um, I get the sense that a lot of us see that type of hard quantitative data science stuff as something separate to us, and we need to triangulate it. I think what's going to happen is it's actually going to become quite core to the way we work. And data science, um, hopefully with really nice, easy-to-use visualization tools, is going to be as much a part of what we do as user research or usability evaluation or facilitating co-design or all of those types of core skills. The other question that I think it challenges uh, service designers to think about is, um, how do we add an empathy layer? And you've probably seen this. You get these top-line stats, these metrics, and they tell you that something is happening, but what they don't really tell you is the why underneath it. To get the why, you need to go out into the community or into the right setting and be ethnographic. Again, you need to start to build empathy for the situation, and then you can come to a real explanation. So as much as data science is going to come to us, we need to take our empathy approaches to data science and be prepared for this wave of big data revolution. Um, Okay, um, two, the no experience. Um, some cases, the low experience. It's, um, it's going to come because things are so connected and also there's lots of trickles of information moving into government that turns into a flood of information for each person. And through that, what we can do is start to actually get rid of experiences. Like, it's not going to be about designing the best experience you can design. It's going to sometimes be about just getting rid of them because, firstly... Maybe we can get the information that we need or the interaction that we need through a source that doesn't involve a user's time. Uh, maybe we're going to be able to um, invisibly piggyback on something else that they're doing and share the information, uh, for example. And this is already kind of happening to some extent. I mean, tax services is a pretty good example, for example. They've 
They've been pulling in banking information and super information for a while. Something pretty exciting in tax. Um, uh, shortly, if you're a business of a certain size, you will, or if you're smaller, you may, and not have to report pay as you go withholding in sort of big batches. It'll just be a natural part of your normal payroll cycle. So it actually takes a lot of work out and just incorporates it into a natural system. Um, we think these types of no experiences are going to be very common and the footprint of interaction with government. So the experience footprint is going to start decreasing. And it's going to be creepy. <laughs> government is going to know a lot of things about you. Um, it also uh, creates an emphasis for making sure that consent is being managed very well. We're going to come back to the notion of consent in a couple of minutes. But um, if you're faced with a choice between creepy and having to fill out a, a, a big, scary form, what are you going to do? You're going to go creepy. Not everyone. Not everyone. I would. I'll, I can deal with the creepy. Um, so, um, again, the challenge that it brings is how do we design away experience footprints to move to low experiences, um, experiences that have a very small footprint or an incidental footprint, or no experiences. You don't even have to do anything. The other thing is when is an experience needed and a no experience pattern undesirable? So, um, Every time there's a touch point between um, a person in the community and government, it's an opportunity for intervention, education, um, uh, tar program targeting. There's a whole lot of stuff that come from those interactions. So if over time we're getting rid of a lot of those touch points and therefore giving the public a better and lower burden experience, we might be losing something. And we need to work out how we get that back again. Or maybe we will say, this experience is too valuable to give away. Um, prediction three, brought to you by, this is driven by the notion of increased connectivity, about the fact that in the private sector and there's a huge amount of acceleration happening, and the fact that there are very engaged communities out there and they're pretty savvy nowadays. And it's the notion that at the moment um, agencies see themselves as the deliverers of their own digital user interface. But in the future, we think that that's actually going to shift there might still be agency user interfaces, but if you're trying to tap into natural systems, you're trying to tap into what's there already, uh, it might make more sense to push the interface out to other parties in the community sector or the private sector. And slowly over time, government may actually use its digital interface with the public, and it might make absolute sense for that to happen. Um, so government might move from an uh, experience touch point provider to a provider of data and rules that other people can then use through, say, APIs. Um, and that means that the private sector and NGOs will become exper the experienced deliverers. Um, in the background here, there's a photograph. That's what you get if you become an e-resident of Estonia. So anyone, anyone any e-residents? There you go. Um, it's brilliant. Basically, um, you don't get living rights, but everything else, you can open up businesses, you have an identity, you can use notary services. There's a whole lot of stuff that you get from becoming a virtual resident of that country. Um, maybe Estonia is actually going to be delivering some of your services that you deliver today. It's not impossible. Um, maybe other governments will be able to um, will be saying, well, we've got this great system, why don't you use some of ours? Or maybe you'll be supplying other governments in a similar way. So it really shakes things up, this notion of who's going to deliver the experience. 
It could be in lots of different places. Um, which means, and so the other challenge is you're going to have to make sure that when a government experience is being delivered, no matter who's delivering it, there's a certain level of trustability to it. Uh, we'll come back to that in a second. Public as service designers and scrutineers. Um, that's agriculture. It was developed in a GovHack um, this year, I'm pretty sure. And it's pretty cool. It basically takes, takes a whole lot of agricultural information and then it's, it, you know, it lets you see um, output of farms and productivity. There's a whole lot of really... If you're a, if you're a farmer, um, you'll love this app. I'm not, but I love that farmers love it. Um, this, this is the beginning of something. When we move to this new world where government is not really delivering the interface anymore, but it's delivering other things, the public might actually become scrutineers and service deliverers, and they may create services that you never even considered. They might use the government rule set and data in completely different ways, and that could actually become quite common. So I don't know how many agencies have an API strategy. You've probably got a cloud strategy. You've probably got APIs between other agencies, but what does it look like um, when this comes to pass? And I don't think it's going to take 10 years for the first ones of these to roll out. Just... just Incidentally, this is um, BitNation. So it is a, um, it's a service that's been created um, specifically, or particularly, I'll say, for refugees who are currently stateless. So um, they go and, um, using a circle of trust such as their family and friend network, prove their identity and register online, and they get a virtual ID for this virtual nation called BitNation. And then they can start to use that ID as proof of identity. So suddenly um, they have identity, which is actually a very powerful thing to get back. Um, if anyone knows what the acronym KYC stands for, you know why we should be quite worried about this. <laughs> and uh, know your client, because um, it poses all sorts of risks. And it also poses all sorts of benefits that are quite compelling to the user. So in some ways, sometimes your services that government provide are actually going to be in competition, potentially, with other services like this, international or other governments. And uh, there might be very good reasons that you should win that competition. So I guess the big questions for us are, how can we encourage good public design? How can we guide the people who are delivering services to deliver something that is going to be genuinely helpful how do we make sure that if, uh, say, a corporation is delivering a service on behalf of government, it doesn't use the information in a secondary use capacity um, for things that might be an undesirable outcome? Remembering that any time, and we know this because we've done lots of research, users see the crest, they think they're in a safe trust zone. So if someone's delivering a service on government's behalf, even if it's not as trustworthy as it should be, um, customers will think that it is. And, of course, with BitNation, I think it starts to provoke that question. What if we lose our monopoly on government services, not because of a policy decision, but just because outside influences are creating compelling alternatives? We talked a bit about consent. I wanted to come back to it quickly. I think there's going to be a new role called a consent architect because consent is going to become so incredibly complicated soon. Um, if we are actually getting other people to deliver our experience, then... Um, having users be confident that they're consenting to everything that's there um, is going to be very complicated. Uh, at complex and complicated. And for them, maybe even a bit chaotic. So how do you design consent that sits in between the tensions of legality 
and also makes it really easy for people to understand what they're signing up to, particularly if they're using government via a third party. Um, it is really hard to get consent right. Um, and um, the idea that um, you can do it just as something on the side, I think, is going to become more and more challenging. So we think that there will be... Um, Oh, and this actually becomes harder to when in a continuous release cycle paradigm where you actually might have lots of different micro-reconsents rolling out as applications change on almost a weekly or fortnightly basis. Anytime there's something worthwhile reconsenting to, do you want to put them through a whole complicated process again? Do you want to talk about the delta? I don't know the answer to this, um, but a consent architect hopefully will. So this is a notion of bringing together specialist skill sets in the same personal group Usability, user experience, service governance, and legality in the same mind. The same person thinking about the laws, also thinking about um, the user. Um, I think I've talked through most, most of those. How do we handle micro-consents? What does meaningful consent even look like? And who's accountable? Depersonalization. So artificial intelligences are pretty amazing things. Um, and they're here. <laughs> what we think of as analytics today is the seeds of what's going to be around in 10 years. As powerful as you think the computer is that, uh, that beats that amazing Go player, that's going to be trivial compared to what happens next. And, you know, artificial intelligences are very, very interesting. They're quite different from a normal application. You don't write lots and lots of code and then run it and everything happens. You write a little bit of code and then you engage it in a deep learning exercise where it reaches out to lots and lots of data and through that identifies patterns and starts to understand how it can infer from those patterns um, things that need to be inferred. It's a really different model. Um, really different model. This is... Google Doodle. Um, you can find it through Google. And you should. Um, this is machine learning at its, at its funnest, but it, it also starts to show some really brilliant features. So what you do is it gives you a noun, and then you draw that noun. And as you're drawing, it keeps on referring back to what it's learned through its machine learning processes. To say, that's a guitar. No, it's a giraffe. No, it's a this. And actually... A lot of the time, even if you draw quite badly, it'll work out what you're trying to draw. That, that is incredibly difficult. Like that, it's a trivial example of a powerful breakthrough because in addition to identifying a giraffe, it could use patterns to identify a security threat. Or it could use patterns to identify someone who could really, really benefit from that social program. So the same logic that goes behind um, uh, pattern matching for giraffes is useful for all of those. Um, and it's also kind of fraught with danger as well. It's kind of fraught with danger. Does anyone know Microsoft um, chatbot Tay? Yeah. So Tay started out as a chatbot that was going to learn from conversational patterns. And in 24 hours, it had become a racist, sexist Nazi. I was tossing and turning last night to try and decide whether I should read you some quotes from it. And I'm not going to. They're, they're that bad. But you should totally Google it, just, just not on a work computer. Um, <laughs> um, and why did it do that? Because it was looking for patterns and it trawled the internet. And guess what happens when you have conversations with random people on the internet? You have conversations with a lot of racist, sexist Nazis. Um, 
Here's another example of where things can go a bit wrong. Um, in Florida, they rolled out um, artificial intelligence to do risk assessment scoring of um, people in parole hearings to determine recidivism risks. So are they going to reoffend? And it does, that does a couple of things. Firstly, it takes accountability away from a panel because they've now got this number to rely on, right? Secondly, it kept on being wrong. Um, Brisha Borden, who had a minor misdemeanor, I think she like stole a tricycle from a front, like it was something trivial. She was seen as an eight route to reoffend, whereas that charming guy was seen as low risk um, because of the patterns. But there was a human intelligence that needed to be applied to it to make sense of some of that. Um, she didn't reoffend, he did. Um, what does that mean for artificial intelligence? It means that. Um, from an experience design perspective or from a service design perspective, we need to ensure that the personality and biases of an AI don't create poor and harmful experiences. We need to understand how does the human and the AI come together to make collaborative decisions that are going to present a good experience. And a lot of this presentation, we talk about the impact of the experience on the end user. I think with AI, the experience design that's really mattering, that really will matter, will be the experience design of the human that's interacting with what is effectively an alien intelligence. It's not an intelligence like us, only dumber. It's an intelligence that's in a completely different pathway of evolution, and they need to work each other out. Um, one other slightly not, uh, funny consequence, if an AI judges that um, you are going to potentially lose your job based on patterns and the economy and lots of things, and then it starts showing lots of ads and government websites to you about how you can apply for um, uh, certain types of benefits. Is that going to be a good experience or a bad experience? <laughs> Prediction six, motivation engineering. We all, well, I'm sure most of us know what behavioral economics is. There are nudge units and there's been a really amazing effects. Um, the ability to use um, kind of psychological hacks to encourage things like compliance or encourage things like um, taking cha behavior change, uh, generating behavior change. And I mean, there's this great example from um, another country where they decided they were going to deploy behavioral economics. In this country, if you see a red piece of paper, it's very like it's a real cultural meme that says you've done something bad and you need to look at this right now. And uh, they were getting pretty, pretty low return rates on kind of a, a semi-important form that they were sending out to people. So to think of it like a survey-type form. So they thought, if we make it red, everyone's just going to send it back. They'll look at it, they'll open it up, it'll be fantastic. And it worked brilliantly. Um, huge response rate, um, including a lot of really ugly messages. Um, <laughs> people were really upset um, because they felt they'd been manipulated and worried for no good reason. Uh, gamification, I think we're all familiar with how you use game mechanics to drive real-world behaviours and artificial intelligence, bringing these two together to apply them in more powerful ways. Um, motivation engineering, um, we, th we think that this is actually going to be a growing field because the results are so powerful, it's almost irresponsible to say we're not going to use this. It's fringe at the moment because it's new, um, but as it proves itself, I think there will be a tipping point where... Um, uh, psychology will be a very important factor in how you design touch points and experiences. But there's also going to have to be an ethics side to it because ultimately um, the line between um, invitation and manipulation is, is quite a fuzzy one. 
And so in the same way that we do ethics reviews for you know, clinical stuff, we might find ourselves doing some ethics review for behavioural economics as well. And I think once we get that in, that's what will actually help normalise it in the next decade. It's neat. Uh, the ethics stuff is, is neat. not that people are breaking ethics, but that ethics assurance, I think, is needed. So the questions for us are how do we balance the needs of the community and the rights of the individual, and where are the guardrails, particularly when it's an AI, not a human, trying to apply some of the stuff, and how do we make sure that it fits into our ethical framework? Seven, design consolidation. <laughs> Whoops, this slide, that's, that's the wrong slide. That's the wrong slide. I can just make up why those are the, uh, the, the provocations, but I won't. I'll just admit it. Um, Prince 2 has a formal language, a formal structure. People are certified. The certifications are widely understood by all types of community. And the reason behind that is that project management has been around for a while. This isn't a new thing. It's been going for arguably hundreds of years, at least about a century. Design and service design is actually pretty new. People are still trying to work out what a common terminology looks like. Um, a common taxonomy, what common skill set, a common way of governing things. Um, deployments, uh, indicators where it's needed and should be deployed. And so we think that it's a beautiful, glorious, kind of Wild Westy field at the moment. Um, but it actually is going to start to become a bit more standardised. Um, we think we're not quite sure how it's going to happen. There's lots of contenders for how this will happen. I personally think, Jess, and from our experience as well, um, systems thinking and design thinking are definitely going to be two emergent forces that will come together. Um, uh, no, no doubt, absolutely no doubt in my mind. That's definitely happening around the world. Um, this conclusion, I think people are already reaching. We haven't quite reached it here in Australia yet. Um, but, um, yeah, so, so I think we're going into a brave new world where our profession, as glorious and adaptive and agile as it is, becomes a little bit more stable and a little bit more um, predictable. And we're actually pretty interested. This is just a, a quick request as well. We're pretty interested in designers, um, what they like, who they are. Um, we've got this little test. It's like a personality test, but it's more about who you are as a designer. Um, and um, we like people doing it because then we get a better understanding of what designers are like, and we'll, we'll, we'll share that back, of course. So if you have a mind and you want to, want to do it, um, please feel free, and, of course, we'll make all the information publicly available. Um, so the question for us from design consolidation is, what do we gain? So what do we gain as a profession? What do we gain as a profession if we go down this more standardised path? Um, what do we lose? Well, maybe we gain repeatability. There's other things too. What do we lose? And what's it going to look like? Our last prediction harkens back, if people remember the Office of Government Online and those heady days when e-government was new and we were still trying to work out what it all meant. People would remember this notion of digital divide. It never went away. It's just talked about less because the, the divide has gotten a little bit narrower in some places, not everywhere, but in some places in Australia. But if you think about all of those predictions that we just talked about, I think what we start to see is the divide actually gets bigger. If you, don't, if you aren't tied in to this innovation ecosystem that we're creating, 
a lot of the stuff that I've just talked about, which could potentially be an overriding part of the government experience, simply won't be in your site. It just, you just won't get access to it. It won't be. And so the people who do get access to it are going to be more advantaged than ever, and the people who don't have access today are still going to be as disadvantaged as ever. The gap actually starts to widen. Um, and if I had one set of questions and challenges that I think are the most critical challenges for this room, the challenge that you should take back and start talking about, it is how do we design for low-resource contexts and disadvantage? How do we not leave the people who need the government's help the most behind because of the excitement that we're generating about all these new exciting ways of dealing with the public? And, of course, how do we convince others to join us. Thank you. Don't turn it off and then I turn it off. Um, so we have time for questions for Darren, but what I need you to do is actually come up to the mic so, I can, so you can do your question and then I can hand it to Darren because we're just using the handheld. So if you have a question, please do pop up. No questions? So... Um, if you're interested in some of the stuff that Darren talked about in the middle around like algorithms and things, you should read this book called Weapons of Math Destruction. Have you read that yet? It's by Cathy O'Neill. It's really good. She has a website called Math Babe and she looks at the algorithms and the and so she has uh, like a, the story about that um, recidivism yeah. algorithm and and a whole bunch of other interesting things. It's a really really good book about the scary things that we can do with algorithms and how we can not do some of those scary things. So read that. Otherwise, uh, other questions? Grab Darren. Oh, you got a question? You're, oh, you, wow, you're on the mic to me. Uh, the, um, no, it's more like I don't want to take up more airtime. But uh, particularly in the public sector, um, when we look at things like this and you're kind of putting out a 10-year horizon on it, it's like, do you really think we're going to hit it in 10 years? Because, like... Say, digital identity. So, BC, I worked on a new kind of government ID that combines a healthcare card and driver's license and a smart chip. It's like the only jurisdiction in North America that has that. And we've been talking about that for a long, long time, more than 10 years. So, um, I'm just curious on, on your sense of, like, 10 years is a nice marker for a talk. What's your real sense of, of the adoption rates of some of these things? Oh, nice. Now we can have a duet. Um, I, I, there's two things I want to respond to, actually. And it's, it's funny you should raise um, identity and authentication because that was actually number nine. But when, when I designed the talk, I said at eight and I had to cut one out. It was, um, but I think... Um, so I'll answer your question first about the time horizon. I think you're absolutely right. Um, ten years feels long, but it's actually pretty darn short. What I think we'll see is in ten years is some of these to move from novel pilots to some, um, some operationalized, um, scaled uses. Um, I think widespread use is going to lag well behind that. And, you know, if you think about there's some agencies that don't have a mobile responsive website, um, how they're going to be using depersonalization to drive, um, uh, to drive uh, their service offerings. So um, in 10 years' time, I'm hoping that we'll have some, I'll, you know, someone will be up here talking about a case study, and then we'll, we'll think back to this presentation and go, 
Sounds weirdly familiar. Um, <laughs> um, but the identity question, I think, is a really interesting one. Um, when we think about identity, I think there's two waves of um, exciting developments happening. Um, one is about um, blockchain and um, you know how we can store identity. Well, effectively make make a blockchain or a giant distributed public ledger into either a certifying authority or maybe something even more powerful and some sort of actual authentication agent. Um, and I think government's going to be shy of that unless we work out how to do that through a private, uh, private uh, set of servers because it creates this kind of like honeypot out there that if um, we ever get the right private numbers, um, might, might suddenly become uh, public knowledge. So, um, But the thing that really excites me is biometrics. And I keep on getting surprised because I keep on thinking there are biometrics... Uh, biometric factors that are in the future, and then I hear that they're being used by an agency somewhere. Um, voice printing is being used, being used right now um, in in a couple of agencies. Um, there's um, thinking in certain agencies about how you would use um, um, sort of warped um, uh, facial biometrics. So I think biometrics actually is going to be the key to some of this stuff. Um, but again, I'm, I'm kind of scared of predicting how quickly it's going to happen for the same reasons you were talking about. It might just, there might be a lag factor. There might be a lag factor. Well, thank you so much. Love the talk. Great. Hi, my name's Kate. Um, my question is around design consolidation. Um, who is that going to come from? Who should it come from? Because I know personally working in the field, like there's been a lot of conversations about you know, even things like, oh, there's still no really good, clear definitions of UX versus CX versus service design. Like, but nobody's kind of feels willing to really put their hand up and, and do something about it. So I'm just interested, where do you think it is or should come from? I think that something very interesting is happening right now. There's, a, there's an opportunity here which hasn't really been available um, before. Um, it's things like the Digital Transformation Agency. It's things like the GDS. It's um, the American equivalent. I can never remember the letters and numbers, but thank you. <laughs> um, where although the private sector may, have, may keep their own different languages for longer because there's advantages in them doing that, and the public sector could actually get together and say, let's try to get some coherency around this in sort of a global way so it gets to take root. So I think there are now organs inside government that can show some very strong leadership on this. And um, it may not happen immediately, um, but that, that is, if I had to lay some money on it, that's probably where I'd place my bet. Great. Thank you very much. Thanks, Thanks, Aaron. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from Service Design Canberra 2016. For more presentations from this and other conferences, please visit uxaustralia.com.au.